I'm Michael Geary, and this is the EU History Podcast. My guest on this episode is historian Dr. Lindsay Aki, a research fellow at the University of Westminster and expert on Britain's relations with the European community, especially in the 1970s. She's the author of The First Referendum, Reassessing Britain's Entry to Europe, 1973-75, published in 2020 by Manchester University Press. And it is that infamous June 1975 referendum on Britain's continued membership of the common market and the government's own campaign that's the topic of this episode. Lindsay, welcome to the EU History Podcast. Thank you very much. Can I first ask you what drew you to retrace the road to Britain's EU membership and the fascinating renegotiation and the even more fascinating and somewhat bizarre um, re-referendum on whether the Brits would remain a member of an organisation that they had only joined two years earlier? Um, so when I first moved to the UK, UK to do a master's. Um, I, I took a, a module on European integration history. And I had always thought of the UK as a European country. Coming from Canada, that didn't seem like a controversial thing to think, a controversial statement. And very quickly, I learned that this was not the case. So I just, I got really interested in the very strained relationship that the UK had with these institutions that it seemed to have tried so hard to join and then remain a member of. Um, and when I was in my master's, I proposed a master's thesis topic on the renegotiation and the referendum. But Piers Ludlow, who was my uh, thesis advisor, suggested that that might be too broad for a master's thesis, but to save it for a PhD, if that was something I was interested in doing. Um, and then when eventually I started the PhD, I came to the idea of looking at the referendum and information policy from sort of two directions. One was this UKIP publication that claimed the 1975 referendum was a majority attained by fraud. Uh, and that, that was actually the, the sort of title and hook for an, the original version of this article. But peer reviewers didn't, didn't like it too much. And in the end, I shifted the focus away from that. And then secondly, when I started looking around in the archives, I just found all of these really interesting internal debates going on between officials, ministers, about what seemed like a fairly straightforward thing to do, which is to hold a referendum. Lots of countries do it. It doesn't seem like such a foreign democratic device. And yet it's the subject of volumes and volumes and volumes of paper. So I got interested in the constitutional aspects of it. And the whole the whole article really just spiraled from there. Um, talking about, I suppose, this foreign device, um, at least foreign to the Brits, because not not if you compare them to, to, the, to Swiss, the Swiss, for example, uh, not at all foreign to them. <laughs> but um, especially for Britain, with, with a country of no tradition of referenda. And as we move to the end of the 1960s and into the early 1970s, as Britain is negotiating to join the EEC, there are early calls not many to have a referendum on joining that doesn't happen but then bizarrely and somewhat ironically the calls become louder after Britain joins the EEC so how does this happen how does Harold Wilson as British Prime Minister in 1974 come to inherit this idea of a referendum on Britain's continued membership it's strange isn't it that that the, the idea of having or the the sense that the UK is going to have a referendum seems to be much more intense, almost 
I don't want to say inevitable, but almost inevitable after the UK joins. And I think I think it kind of comes from two it comes from two places. One is that after the second failed application and at the end of the the 1964-1970 Wilson government there there are some early calls for a vote um there's a um, a, a 10 minute a 10 minute rule debate where uh, a conservative mp Bruce Campbell introduces this debate and suggests that there there has to be a referendum and his his claims are that people up and down the country every day are talking about Europe and that they want the opportunity to express their views now i have found very little evidence mm-hmm. of a true kind of popular desire for a referendum but mp's claim quite powerfully that they do want one um tony Ben also makes the case and 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 writes an open letter to his constituents about it. Uh, and the second thing that that Bruce Campbell says is that referenda are not so foreign to the UK. And now uh, the example he gives, which is is one that I had to look up, um, is a requirement in Wales for referendums to be held on the Sunday opening of pubs. Um, and so he says, if we're going to ask people whether pubs should be open on a Sunday, it seems only right that an issue which could impact so many more aspects of people's lives should also be subject to a referendum. And you then see the referendum gets linked to this question of of European community membership. And then in the European um, in the debates on the European Communities Bill, that then it, you know it becomes a constant, constant refrain of Tory rebels who are saying we need to allow people the right to vote. People want the right to vote. Whether or not there is any evidence of a public outcry for a referendum, that's the case that gets made. And then within the Labour Party, I think it essentially becomes almost impossible for Wilson to hold the party together without at least conceding that there should be some form of renegotiation and public consultation. Um, and interestingly, in the in the the NEC meeting where the referendum gets approved, Wilson isn't there, um, mm. and neither is Callahan. Now, it eventually gets approved at a Labour Party conference, and it gets into the manifesto. So it's not as though the argument for a referendum sort of bypasses Wilson by any means. Um, but in that in the first NEC meeting where Ben brings it up, the idea of a referendum gets rejected, and then the second time he tries it, which is interestingly after the French hold their referendum on enlargement, which I think gives a bit more power to the argument that the UK should have one. You know, if the French are going to vote on whether we should join, why why do we not get to vote on whether to join um, or in the case of what actually happens, whether to stay? And, and of course, uh, Edward Heath doesn't have to deal with the Europe question after February 1974. So even if there are those in his party who are calling for a referendum, he's out of power, they lose that election. And how far then does the Europe question and the call for a referendum become something of a Labour Party psychodrama for the rest of 1974? I mean, how far is this referendum? Because as you say in your research, you talk about that there's no public outcry, there's no real popular desire for a referendum because people are so used to Parliament deciding laws for Britain, unlike across the water in Ireland where there had been about I think five referenda up to 1972 so people were pretty familiar with the need for a popular vote on big Mm -hmm. substantive issues but then this this particular problem becomes a labor problem for 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 from 197 from February 74 onwards right yeah absolutely um and it it becomes the strategy that Wilson it it becomes the only way for Wilson to keep his government together you know I think that that's the argument 
argument that's been made for quite a long time now in, in the literature about renegotiation and referendum. And I, I think it's pretty difficult to dispute that it was a clever tactic for holding the Labour Party together. And certainly I, I from the opinion polling that I've read, from the 1970s, there's very little public, there's little public awareness or knowledge of the European community ahead of, sort of when the campaigns really get into full swing. Certainly, when you ask people, you know, big issues facing the country, what are they? People in the 1970s aren't thinking whether or not there's public consultation about the decision to join the European community, given the context of the time, inflation, um, in industrial relations, the European community is fairly low on the agenda. Um, so until the campaigns really get into full swing, it is a Labour Party drama. It's it, actually it's the it's the referendum information unit that does some research into this. And one of they 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 do weekly research into the amount of newspaper coverage that different issues related to the referendum are getting. And there are a few weeks where the the top issue is not actually an issue to do with European community membership. It's the Labour Party's fight mm. over Europe that is getting the most coverage so that that kind of tells you something about how um how much of a labor issue as you as you put it uh, the the renegotiation of referendum are harold wilson then you know promising a renegotiation of the terms of britain's accession and then ends up having to fulfill that pledge uh, and he goes to brussels he doesn't really negotiate very much he doesn't really bring back an awful lot uh, so i think my at a, at a on a foundational level my view of the renegotiation is that Wilson gained a lot of things that Heath was aiming for. If, we, if you take two examples, the sort of changes to the common agricultural policy and changes to the budget, these are two issues where Heath is very much aware, even before joining, that the UK will have to find some way of reducing the cost of agricultural support within the community and some way, which is linked to that, of reducing the UK's overall contribution to the European community budget. And what Wilson ends up getting on the budget is not some sort of transformational change to the way the EU the, the way the European community finances itself. It's a rebate which in the years following its introduction is never triggered. The UK never actually meets the conditions. I think with the exception of one year, it might be 1978 is the one year between 1975 and then Thatcher's eventual, the outcome of Thatcher's negotiations in 1984. I think there's one year where the UK triggers the rebate. Uh, so it's, it's not a huge change, but he is able to say that he got the European community to rethink think the way that it finances itself and that he got a better deal for the UK. I think on New Zealand as well, I think New Zealand's an interesting one because there are quite a few books and articles on this topic that say Wilson got more because he was than, than Heath ever could have, you know, because Wilson was a committed Commonwealth man. He he talks about, I think he claims he has 42 cousins in New Zealand or something like that during during the referendum campaign. But it's worth it's worth pointing out that the arrangements for New Zealand made in the accession negotiation were going to be subject to some form of negotiation because they were short-term arrangements. Wilson cleverly packages this in a formal renegotiation where he gets to say, I went to Brussels, I went to Europe and demanded X, Y, or Z and brought that back. But those arrangements for New Zealand were going to come to an end. And I think it's unlikely that any British government would have just allowed those arrangements to end without any kind of negotiation for another deal for New Zealand. What's fascinating in your own research is the internal discussions within government on how 
how a referendum would work in a country that, as we've discussed, very seldom, if ever, have them, and other issues like how they would even count the votes. Right. And there were even at a political level, there are a lot of people, including Margaret Thatcher, as leader of the opposition from 70 before the referendum, are not enamored by the idea of a big mm. substantive issue being decided upon by the people. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, a very strong case that's made in Parliament, uh, made within the government against a referendum. Some of these are big political arguments. It, it's kind of the high level of this simply is not within the British democratic tradition. Um, we should not, you know, parliamentarians should not delegate their responsibilities to the public. That is not the point of a parliamentary democracy. But then at a much more technical level within government amongst officials and ministers, there are all these smaller questions about the the machinery of government, the operation of a referendum that seem to suggest that this is not such a straightforward thing to do. Now, these officials that, that work on how how to run the referendum, do some research into referendums that have been held in other countries. Uh, they end up researching the Norwegian referendum in 1972. Um, and, and essentially, the, you know, the, the lessons they take away there are more about content and how not to lose a referendum um, than they are about how to, to actually operate one. But the logistics of the referendum seem to hang as this huge question mark over officials and ministers, you know, even leading to a much more complex set of questions about, you know, this is a referendum with two potential outcomes. So what do we do if the public votes no? I mean, it's something I've, I've written about elsewhere that this then spirals into a whole series of contingency plans that are created for the potential to lose the referendum. Although I would say that there is nobody at the sort of senior official level within government that thinks that's something that could happen. Mm -hmm. um, the, the whole, the planning for the referendum, the planning of the government's campaign all takes place under an air of confidence. The mm -hmm. government officials are all very confident that the referendum will be won. I, I have to quote um, a little bit from your article where uh, you discuss Margaret Thatcher in her first parliamentary speech after becoming Conservative Party leader and she quoted Clement Attlee's famous condemnation of referendums as a splendid weapon for dictators and demagogues. In your research, you really worked nicely or you discussed nicely this whole area of information policy versus propaganda and the fine line between the two which is a really interesting way of looking at the challenges that the British government faced. Was there a starting point information or was there a starting point propaganda or how does the Labour government which is very much divided um, between those who want to stay in Europe and those who want Britain to leave. How does the information unit put itself together knowing that there are members of the government who are, are so divided? So th there, there are a couple of things that happen which I think are really telling of how officials, especially for officials, I think how senior officials working closely on the referendum deal with these questions of information versus propaganda. And one of them actually links to debates about the wording of the question. So when officials start thinking about the, qu the question that will go on the ballot paper, there's this debate about um, should, it say, should it say be or should it say stay? Now, stay is the more accurate word because it is the status quo. But anti-market ministers in the cabinet, I think Tony Benn in, in particular, is critical of this because he thinks this is yet another sort of opportunity for the government to make its case, to bias the referendum toward, towards a yes vote. And because it's the wording of the question, is that then leading people to vote one
one way or another. Now, he can't really get around the argument that actually this is the most accurate way to write the question. And this links to another point, which is about the term that will actually be used. How are we going to refer to the thing we're asking people to vote on? So the term European community is chosen, but there are officials are very worried about using that term. They're worried that it's going to be misunderstood because the most common terms within the UK are EEC or common market. Common market gets chosen as kind of a way of placating the anti-market ministers. That's their preferred term. But officials are worried about using the term European community. And this links to your wider question about whether the government is providing information or propaganda. Because there's a, although officials aren't worried about losing the referendum, in the period between January 75 and April 75, they are worried about people not knowing enough and that there might be some question over the legitimacy of the outcome. You know, if this is a referendum where people then afterwards say, uh, oh, I, you know, I'm not so sure about the way I voted, or even worse, there's a low turnout, which delegitimizes the referendum altogether, and people are apathetic because they're, it's just not an issue they know enough about in order to get out and vote. Now, that's something that officials are really worried about. And that's why in the end, the government information pamphlet, which the original version is written by Robert Moreland, the official who's uh, he's brought back from a posting in Rome to head up the information unit. But his draft is then given to Sidney Jacobson, the political editor of the Daily Mirror, to, to kind of jazz it up and make it a bit more uh, digestible, if you like, to the public. There's a very fine line between what is what is propaganda and what is information. But there's a lot of concern within government about the importance of providing information to the public and making sure that people are informed, both about what Europe, the European community is, just on a sort of purely factual level, and also then about the government's efforts in the renegotiation. One of the reasons that the anti-market members of the cabinet concede the case for an information unit is because even they agree that the government is probably the body within the referendum context that is that is best able to explain the renegotiation to the public. In terms of the, the wider political and economic environment of 1975, there is a cost of living crisis. There is this narrative that had been around for even longer, um, this idea of Britain in decline. And how far are these big themes feeding into the public's understanding of the importance of staying in the European community? And how far far do these crises, both real and imaginary, um, help the information unit in the cabinet office kind of, you know, help do their job for them in convincing people that, listen, the status quo is the best thing for Britain to maintain? I think it certainly helps the information unit that you know, they don't need to come up with a way to focus the public's attention. There's an easy hook out there, if you like, you know, we're facing a cost of living crisis, we're facing a, a crisis over the price of food and the security of supply. The European community provides the answers to these things. And it helps that when the information unit does research, when Wilson himself actually uh, pays for some private polling to be done, he finds that the phrases people most commonly associate with the European community are we can't go it alone and we can't survive as an island. Those links between the idea that the UK is in decline and that the European community is the UK's answer to that, those links are already there. Whether they existed because of previous government initiatives on information to do with the European community or because you know the, the public 
had their own associations between the European community and the UK's economic and political state. It's it's hard to say, but it certainly required no great propaganda effort on on behalf of the government to create to to create those connections um, or to to use those connections is probably more what I'm trying to say uh, in in their in their campaign. But the, and the loss of sovereignty doesn't really appear to be a major issue in the referendum, which is, you would imagine that it would be, because it was a huge issue in 2016. But at the first referendum in 1975, the loss of sovereignty, which there's no denying there was a loss of sovereignty, doesn't appear to be as prominent an issue as others, like the cost of living crisis, the idea of Britain in decline, maintaining the status quo, and so on. I've always found the sovereignty question to be such a difficult one, because it's there. It, it's absolutely there it's being discussed it, it's in the newspapers if if you sort of follow the referendum information unit's own research into the issues that are being discussed um, sovereignty actually ranks quite highly for a few weeks you know it's up there at the top with the cost of food and then also with sort of coverage of fighting within the labor party um, so it's by no means absent from the referendum but i think the information unit was hesitant to focus in on that as an issue for a couple of reasons. One, it's it's a difficult case to make. It's not as concrete, say, as the arguments about the cost of living or or food or trade. And also the information unit received questions from people which suggested there was a general confusion about what sovereignty meant. I'll, I'll never forget coming across one of those questions, which was which essentially was a question about whether or not loss of sovereignty related to the loss of the sovereign. And and I don't think that is, I don't think we can sort of generalize that to everybody, but it's telling of the way that within government, the sovereignty question was perceived. This is a confusing issue. It's a divisive issue. And it's not where we should make our case, I think is probably a fair characterization of how it's being thought about. And finally, then, in terms of the officials, the civil servants working in this information unit, whether they're producing propaganda or information for the public how far did they at any stage believe or feel that they were pushing an open door that this was a case that despite the limited amount of that Wilson brings back from Brussels that this is a referendum that, that they're going to win that there is the opinion polls are in their favor consistently that even by doing the minimum even by doing enough let's call it inf providing information to the public that that's enough to simply get us over the line uh, was it an open door that they were pushing? I I think that essentially so long as there was a good turnout and there was no late stage intervention, say, you know, some commissioner not from the UK says something really controversial or um, the commission comes out with a new policy on fisheries that is not in the UK's favour, which is actually something interestingly that uh, British officials within the commission are very sensitive about. And there are some discussions going on within the commission about fisheries that aren't put on hold but are slowed down so as to ensure that they don't it sort of with very poor timing intervene in in the referendum in 75 but there is so barring anything like that happening i think officials and ministers are very confident and especially after wilson makes some of his later interventions in the referendum campaigns that really boosts confidence because of polling within the labor party and within government, which suggests that a clear public endorsement from the prime minister will convince mm. a lot of people to vote yes. Anybody who's wavering still at that stage will be convinced. And that's, 
that's interesting because it says something about levels of trust in government and in institutions in the 1970s that I think is a very different context to the one in the UK now where um, I was I was listening to something today which suggested that levels of trust in government institutions and other institutions as well like like the police for example are are almost at an all-time low um, so the the context in which the referendum operates in 1975 is very different you don't get you 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 don't get these kind of questioning about experts interfering in in our affairs and and instead, government's confidence is actually boosted by establishment figures stating, you know, yes, you, you should vote yes in the referendum. And despite Wilson's hope that this would put the Europe question to bed for a generation, I think he unfortunately was a little bit too optimistic. At least he got some, there was some peace and quiet for a few years until we turn <laughs> until, until we turned the corner to the 1980s. And then it becomes far more yeah. exciting again for at least for historians who can now look at the, the delights of the Thatcher years uh, and the Thatcher relationship with Europe. We could talk about this all day. The um, article that it's based on is really fascinating, uh, diving deep into this whole world of the 1975 referendum, looking particularly at it from the government's own campaign. I ask each of my podcast guests um, a question from the Proust questionnaire. So Lindsay, here is yours. Who is your hero of fiction? Okay, I think I might have to pick a character from a book that I've recently read. So I possibly won't be a kind of well-known fictional character but the book's fresh in my mind and I really liked this character. It's the book Lessons in Chemistry. It's a recent book. Uh, it's about a woman who um, in the in the 50s she's a chemist but she's not accepted in her profession um, and it, it's essentially a book about a woman with a somewhat eccentric personality who just refuses kind of refuses to refuses to let anxieties society's rules about what women or mothers or you know people from certain places or backgrounds should do bother her um, and i i really appreciate her self-confidence and also her her humor because i think she's slightly unaware of the fact that there might be these societal expectations uh, of women and this this gives her her uh i think her confidence in just going about the world in her way and it's it's also one of the sort of it's a book that i read fairly recently and i I just devoured it. Um, it. It was really good. So, yeah, I Elizabeth Zott my... from Lessons in Chemistry. <laughs> yes, I added it to my list. It sounds fascinating. Um, Dr. Lindsay Aqui, Research Fellow at the University of Westminster. Thanks for being my guest today. I am Michael Geary, and this is the EU History Podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>